Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogonia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, October 21st, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. These protocols of Satan, in my humble opinion, have discussed such a vast panorama of the history of the last several centuries that it is quite difficult to give a synopsis explaining what we have thus far presented. Some of the things we have discussed recently, however, are the inevitable failure of democracy, the role of Jewish bankers in the enslavement of Christendom under global usury capitalism, the ascendancy of finance as the god of this world, and to accomplish this, when all else failed them, the Jewish instigated and coordinated revolutions which removed the obstacles of the French and Russian monarchies to Jewish world supremacism. With that, it took two world wars to remove the obstacles posed by Germany. And while we have not yet had the opportunity to discuss those here, we did make a recent presentation of the Nazis and the Protocols. Presenting these things, we discussed related issues, such as the many warnings against Jewish treachery by traditional Roman Catholics in Britain, and the Jewish agents who were deeply embedded into the post-Protocols American government. All of this was presented in relation to our discussions of Protocol Number 3, which began with Part 22 of this series. So this is the 11th podcast discussing only Protocol Number 3, and we won't be finished with it this evening. Back in May, we set aside this series for summer travels which had taken much, much longer than we initially imagined. I originally thought that this presentation may have been scheduled for August 5th. Now, even though we are about to embark on yet another trip north, at least as far as Shelbyville and Bristol, Tennessee next week, here we shall present part 32 of our series which is subtitled, The Appointed Priesthood. We have discussed at length how, with the end of feudalism and the rise of capitalism under this new system of liberalism, that those with the power of gold became the true kings, as the protocols themselves had asserted. In protocol number one, the authors had boasted that in our day the power of gold has replaced liberal rulers, not will replace, but has replaced, and this at the end of the 19th century. This was true almost as soon as liberal governments were created in place of the absolute monarchs of Europe, mostly during the course of the 19th century. Of course, England had such a liberal government and had come to be controlled by the bankers well before the end of the 17th century. And England was used as a model 
for liberal government after that time. In the book of Hebrews, Paul of Tarsus discussed the fundamental differences in the law concerning rituals and sacrifices between the old Levitical priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood in Christ. And he stated that for the priesthood being changed, from necessity a change of law happens also. So the Christian dispensation departed from the ceremony, sacrifices, and rituals which were conducted by the old priesthood in exchange for a pure religion which held in esteem a keeping of the commandments of God. However, with the eventual corruption of the Roman Church and after those who held the power of gold had become the de facto rulers of the West, the priesthood was indeed changed once again, and now so has the law, but being instituted gradually behind the mask of liberalism, it has hardly been noticed on these terms. Here we shall discuss that phenomenon as we continue with the protocols and the very next portion of protocol number three from the text of Boris Brassall's publication of the Protocols and World Revolution, originally published in 1921. And we will pick up exactly where we left off with protocol number three. The Goys, or Goyim, are no longer accustomed to think without our scientific advice. Consequently, they do not see the imperative need of upholding that which we will sustain by all means when our kingdom is established, namely the teaching in schools of the only true science, the first of all sciences, the science of the construction of human life, of social existence, which requires the division of labor and consequently the separation of people into classes and castes. It is necessary that all should know that equality cannot exist owing to the different nature of various kinds of work, that there cannot be the same responsibility before the law in the case of an individual who by his actions comprises an entire caste, and another who does not affect anything but his own honor. The protocols were written very concisely, and this paragraph is actually saying a lot more than is readily apparent with a merely casual reading. First, where it says, the Goyim are no longer accustomed to think without our scientific advice. There is a boast which in one line substantiates a claim which we have made throughout this entire series of presentations and also in our companion presentations which were titled The Jews in Medieval Europe. That assertion is this. In the 14th through the 16th centuries 
The Jews had come to control the emerging sciences by introducing the Kabbalah into the academic circles of Europe and then into speculative masonry as it formed into Freemasonry in England in the 17th century. All of the so-called great scientific minds of the period were fascinated, even entranced, with Jewish Kabbalism, as if it were a transmittable infection. With this, the rabbis became the leading scientific authorities, because they were esteemed to hold the keys to understanding the Kabbalah through their presumed mastery of the Hebrew language. So it is on this basis that the authors of the protocols have made this boast and it holds true to this very day. In my opinion, most people do not understand what the word religion means. They confuse it for a mere profession of the lips and perhaps allow it to include a description of which church, temple, or synagogue they may attend over the weekend. But during the course of each week, in our pluralistic society, with the exception of a few alien creeds, it is difficult to look at anyone and imagine what religion they actually practice. They are all assimilated one with another in the general pop culture which they all practically which they practically all embrace. But religion, as it is defined by the Merriam Webster English Dictionary, is in part a personal set or institutionalized system of religious attitudes, beliefs, and practices. And the key word there is practices. Religion is really the set of beliefs that one holds upon which one's daily behavior is predicated. One may profess to be a Christian, but if one's daily behavior follows something other than the commandments and examples of Christ, then one's religion, one's true religion, is something else. It's not Christianity. For instance, Today, most people consume synthetic, over-the-counter, or prescription drugs, contrary to the commandments of Christ, which proscribe sorcery, pharmakia. Likewise, most people consume pork or shellfish, which are also contrary to the commandments of Christ. There are dozens of other things which people today routinely practice, such as an acceptance of sodomy, which are contrary to the commandments of Christ. But they do them because modern science allows for them to be permissible. Modern science tells them that there is a gay gene. So, 
modern Christians lay aside the proscription of sodomy for belief in a gay gene that they have not seen. Belief in a thing not seen. That's faith. That's your faith. This is the new priesthood, modern science. The priesthood was appointed by the gods of this world. Those who are in control of the gold and who currently wield power over governments as the protocols have boasted and not only are the scientists the new priesthood but the science itself is controlled by those in power so what follows is a short article which we are including in the next Saxon Messenger. It was written by John Rappaport just a couple of months ago, but it is evidently an updated version of one of his own older articles. We do not know much about Mr. Rappaport, but he seems to be in agreement with us on many things. We get the feeling he may not go so far as we do to identifying the two culprits behind government treachery, but this article comes on the good advice of our Saxon Messenger editor. It is titled, A Totalitarian Society Has Totalitarian Science. The latest version is dated for August 23rd, just a couple of months ago. So we will be following Mr. Rappaport's article here. And quoting him. And I'm not going to interject too many notes here. Over the past 35 years, I've exposed, meaning John Rappaport, I've exposed at least as much fraudulent science as any reporter around. That's just a fact. I mention it because one would expect I've learned a few lessons in the process, and I have. Government-backed science exists because it is a fine weapon to use in order to force an agenda of control over the population. We aren't talking about knowledge here. Knowledge is irrelevant. What counts is how can we fabricate something that looks like the truth? I, meaning John Rappaport, I keep pointing this out. We're dealing with reality builders. In this case, they make their roads and fences and buildings out of data, and they massage and invent the data out of thin air to suit their purposes. After all, and this lets us understand that perhaps Mr. Rappaport is even a little more clued in than he admits, or that he displays in his writing, after all, they also invent money out of thin air. So he goes on to say, Since 1987, one of my goals as a reporter has been to educate the public about false science. Between then and now, I have found that with remarkably few exceptions, mainstream reporters are studiously indifferent to false science. They shy away from it. They pretend that it couldn't be. They refuse to consider facts. They and their editors parrot the experts. Official science 
has a stranglehold on major media. It has the force of a state religion. When you stop and think about it, official science is, in a significant sense, a holy church. Therefore, it is no surprise that the church's spokespeople would wield power over major information outlets. And of course they do, but those outlets are owned and controlled by the same people who control the scientists. John Rappaport continues and he says, These prelates invent, guard, and dispense what is known. That was precisely the role of the Roman Church in times past. And those professionals within the modern Church of Science are severely punished when they leave the fold and accuse their former masters of lies and crimes. They are blackballed, discredited, and stripped of their licenses at the very least. And let me say that before the realm of science was the estate of the Roman Church, it belonged to the ancient Babylonian priesthoods of Mesopotamia. And even back then, the kings used scientific knowledge and their own special priesthood, the bearers of that knowledge, to manipulate the people in the pagan religions of the time. Christianity was supposed to free us of that. The Roman Church failed and made sure we remained enslaved to it. Mr. Rappaport continues, Totalitarian science lets you know that you're living in a totalitarian society. The government, the press, the megacorporations, the prestigious foundations, the academic institutions, the humanitarian organizations say, now he's going to list a, 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 a list of pseudo-quotations which do reflect what all of these organizations and institutions do say. He's sort of caricaturing their opinions. This is the disease. This is its name. This is what causes it. This is the drug that treats it. This is the vaccine that prevents it. And again, this is how accurate diagnosis is done. These are the tests. These are the possible results and what they mean. And again, here are the genes. This is what they do. This is how they can be changed and substituted and manipulated. These are the outcomes. And again, these are the data and the statistics. They are correct. There can be no argument about them. And again, this is life. These are the components of life. All change and improvement result from our management of the components. And again, this is the path. It is governed by truth, which our science reveals. Walk the path. We will inform you when you stray. We will report new improvements. And, finally, again, this is the end. You can go no further. You must give up the ghost. We will remember you.
So Rappaport in that manner parrots and parodies the official lines given by the so-called scientific authorities, to which he next responds, and he says, that we are now witnessing the acceleration of official science. Of course, that term is an internal contradiction, but the state shrugs and moves forward. The notion that the state can put its seal on favored science and force it and punish its competitors is anathema to a free society. And of course we know that the idea of the free society is all an illusion in the first place. Mr. Rappaport doesn't penetrate to that level. He goes on to say that, for example, declaring that psychiatrists can appear in court as expert witnesses when none of the 300 so-called mental disorders listed in the psychiatric literature are diagnosed by laboratory tests. For example, stating that vaccination is mandatory in order to protect the vaccinated who are supposed to be immune from the unvaccinated is an absurdity on its face. For example, announcing that the science of climate change is settled when there are, in fact, huge numbers of researchers who disagree, and then drafting legislation and issuing executive orders based on the decidedly unsettled science. For example, officially approving the release and sale of medical drugs as safe and effective, which go on to kill, at a conservative estimate, 100,000 Americans every year, and then refusing to investigate or punish the agents of these drug approvals, the FDA. For example, permitting the widespread use of genetically modified food crops based on no studies of their impact on human health, and then arbitrarily announcing that the herbicide Roundup, for which many of these crops are specifically designed, is non-toxic. The government is, of course, killing us. For example, declaring and promoting the existence of various epidemics when viruses purportedly causing them are not proven to exist or not proven to cause human illness. And he lists as examples SARS, the West Nile so-called virus, and the swine flu. Then he says, a few of you reading this had been with me since 1988 when I published my first book, AIDS Incorporated. And of course, I'm not familiar with Mr. Rappaport's book. He calls it the scandal of the century and says that, among other conclusions, I pointed out that HIV has never been shown to cause human illness. The frontline drug given to AIDS patients, AZT, was overwhelmingly toxic 
And what was being called AIDS was actually a diverse number of immune-suppressing conditions. Others of you have found my work more recently. I always return to the subject of false science because it is the most powerful long-term instrument for repression, political control, and destruction of human life. As I've stated on many occasions, medical science is ideal for mounting and launching covert ops aimed at populations. Because it appears to be politically neutral, without any allegiance to state interests. Unfortunately, medical science on many fronts has been hijacked and taken over. The profit motive is one objective, but beyond that there is a more embracing goal, totalitarian control. On the issue of vaccines, I've written much about their dangers and ineffectiveness. But also consider this. The push for mandatory vaccination goes a long way toward creating a herd effect, which is really a social construction. In other words, parents are propagandized to think of themselves as a kind of synthetic artificial community. And imagining these words in the mind of the parents belonging to this community. Mr. Rappin, Mr. Rappaport says, Here we are. We are the mo- fathers and mothers. We must protect all our children against the outliers, the rebels, the defectors, the crazy ones who refuse to vaccinate their own children. We are all in this together. They are a threat the enemy. We are good. We know the truth. They are evil. And I believe that Mr. Rappaport has characterized that mentality very well. If the fathers and mothers believe that the vaccines worked, they would never fear the unvaccinated. They put faith in the vaccines. They don't even believe in them. Mr. Rappaport says, this community of the willing are dedicated to what the government tells them, even though it flies in the face of logic, because if you're vaccinated and you believe in the vaccine, you shouldn't worry about people that are unvaccinated. You should pity them. But, as he says, this community of the willing are dedicated to what the government tells them. They are crusaders imbued with groupthink, They run around promoting safety and protection. This group consciousness is entirely an artifact propelled by official science. The Crusaders are, in effect, agents of the state. They are created by the state. Androids. They live in an absurd twilight zone where fear of germs the tiny invisible terrorists, demands coercive action against the individuals who see through the whole illusion. The anti-vaccine folks who actually 
took the time to consider these things and applied some rational common sense. This is what official science can achieve. This is how it can enlist obedient foot soldiers and spies who don't have the faintest idea about how they are being used. This is a variant on Orwell's 1984. The citizens are owned by the all-embracing state, but they aren't even aware of it. That's quite a trick, but it's actually what has happened. He goes on to say that one of my favorite examples of double-think or reverse-think is the antibody test. It is given to diagnose diseases. Antibodies are immune system scouts sent out to identify germ intruders, which can then be wiped out by other immune system troops. Prior to 1985, the prevailing view of a positive antibody test was that the patient is doing well. His body detected the germ and dispensed with it. After 1985, the view was suddenly, and this is bad news, the patient is sick or he is on the verge of getting sick. He has the germ in his body. It does harm. Within the medical community, no one, with very few exceptions, raised hell over this massive switch. It was accepted. It was actually good for business. Now, many more people could be labeled as needs treatment, whereas before, they would have been labeled as healthy. He goes on to say that while I was writing my first book, AIDS Incorporated, in 1987 and 88, I wrote the FDA asking about a possible AIDS vaccine. I was told the following. Every person given such a vaccine would, of course, produce antibodies against HIV. That is the whole purpose of the vaccine, to produce antibodies. And let me say, on a personal note, that in my former law enforcement career, I watched one of the first victims in my county die of quote-unquote AIDS. I believe in 1984, and that same year I was sent to a seminar on the new disease, or whatever you want to call it, and that was in Bergen County, New Jersey. So, just to give you an idea of how early Mr. Rappaport's book was compared to when news of AIDS was hitting government agencies and the mainstream population, probably 1983-84, right in that period. While I was writing my first book, AIDS Incorporated, in 1987-88, I wrote the FDA asking about a possible AIDS vaccine. I was told the following. Every person given such a vaccine would, of course, produce antibodies against HIV. That is the whole purpose of a vaccine, to produce antibodies. To prepare your body, as the theory goes, to combat the actual disease. He goes on to say that, however, I was informed. Patients receiving this vaccine would be given a letter to carry with them in case they ever tested for HIV 
and came up positive. The letter would explain that the antibodies causing the positive test were the result of the vaccine, not the result of natural action inside the patient's body, meaning that they weren't the result of actually catching the disease. In other words, the very same antibodies were either protective against AIDS, meaning they were good, or indicative of deadly disease, meaning they were bad. This was the contradictory and ridiculous and extraordinary pronouncement of official science. It carries over into every disease for which an antibody test is administered. If a vaccine against disease X is given, it delivers immunity because it produces antibodies. But if a diagnostic test for disease X reveals the presence of the same antibodies naturally produced in the body, this is taken as a sign of illness, not validating the science, but rather elucidating the contradictions. Extrapolated to a more general level, the word is, synthetic medical treatment is good. The action of the body to heal itself is incompetent. This, he says, is a type of superstition that would astonish even the most primitive societies. It no longer astonishes me. I see it everywhere in official science. From the medical establishment's point of view, being alive is a medical condition. The most useful politicians, as far as official science is concerned, are those who automatically promote its findings. Such politicians are lifted into prominence. They are champions of the science matrix. They never ask questions. They never doubt. They never make waves. They, they blithely travel their merry way into new positions of power, knowing they have enormous elite support behind them. When they need to lie, they lie. They are taught that those who question or reject official science are a tiny demographic who can be ignored during election campaigns. Don't worry about them. They don't count. These politicians are never in the trenches with the people on issues of health. The elite plan is universal collectivism in which all citizens are atoms of a giant molecule. Many lies need to be told in order to make that dream or nightmare come true. If some of those lies are about science, so much the better. People believe in science. Think about the agendas behind universal vaccination, climate change, universal psychiatric treatment, GMO food, and other science-based frauds. They all imply a model in which individuals give up their power in exchange for doing good and becoming members of the largest group in the world, disabled people with needs that must be addressed and satisfied. Instead of supporting the liberation of the individual, the controllers want to squash it. Why? Because they fear individual power, 
It is forever the unpredictable wild card. They want a society in which every thought an individual thinks connects him to a greater whole. That is, basically, human collectivism, the ultimate goal of Marxist thought. And if that sounds attractive, understand that this whole is a fiction intentionally faked to resemble a genuine oceanic feeling. The elite whole is ultimately a trance-like fiction that will slow down time to a crawl and shrink space to a sliver and focus attention on a single mandate, wait for the next instruction from above, content in the knowledge that it will benefit all of humanity. This program has many agents... Some of them are agents of official science. And that's the end of our article. While we do not know where John Rappaport stands on certain topics, which go beyond these observations, to investigate the identity of those who perpetrate these things, and who have carried out the implementation of this agenda over the span of many generations... Everything that he does observe here is true on several levels. The approved scientific community is the appointed priesthood of those who, indeed, want to herd us all into a global community. It is also the appointed priesthood of global capitalism, which has as its, as its ultimate objective the imposition of collectivism and the reduction of all so-called human life to mundane employment and a series of regulated consumer choices. The faith in science is indeed a religion. The popular Bible translations usually agree with the King James Version where it translates Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 to read Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And while this statement is usually misinterpreted and poorly understood, the vast majority of people do believe that there is a gay gene, or that viruses cause disease. So they respond to the unseen viruses by lining up to be injected with vaccines. They respond to the gay gene by admitting sodomites into their churches, something which is 100% opposed to the gospel of Christ. And most people do believe in unseen mental illnesses, although, as we have seen, None of the 300 so-called mental disorders listed in the psychiatric literature are diagnosed by laboratory tests. But their belief in such illnesses causes them to take drugs, or worse yet, to force their young children to take drugs for things such as attention deficit disorder, or even worse, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder when in fact they are only behaving as normal children, children who may have lacked normal parental discipline.
because that's not taught anymore. Faith in science leads people to accept that climate change is something which man has caused and which man can control. When historical records inform us that climate change over long periods of time is a natural phenomenon which has been occurring without the intervention of man for many, many centuries. Yet this faith in the unseen leads people to agree to a widespread distribution of wealth and resources in a communistic fashion that Marx, Lenin, and Trotsky would all have been quite proud to see. It also lets people agree that poisoning our environment with toxic metals streamed into the atmosphere from jet airplanes is a good idea, something for our benefit. The scientists wouldn't hurt us. Belief in such scientific claims is actually a repudiation of the God of the Bible and the faith which is in Christ. But again, most people are trained to separate their profession of faith from any actual practice of their faith. And thinking that Sunday church is sufficient to save them, for the other 167 hours each week, they follow the devil. Next, the authors of the Protocols boast that since the Goyim are accustomed to following them in all matters of science, the Goyim would now be prepared to follow them in a new science, which they call the only true science. There, they are once again correct, because from as early as the time of the professional priesthoods of ancient Mesopotamia, Science has only been used to manipulate men. So their only true science heralds the introduction of social science. As the protocols say, Consequently, they do not see the imperative need of upholding that which we will sustain by all means when our kingdom is established. Namely, the teaching in schools of the only true science, the first of all sciences, the science of the construction of human life, of social existence, which requires the division of labor and, consequently, the separation of people into classes and castes. Now, if you look up social science in what's probably the most popular internet source, which is Wikipedia. Note that they have categorized history, archaeology, anthropology as social sciences. That categorization is new. It's new. It's recent to the past few decades. Social science degrees and the term social sciences, these things are actually new. 
I don't think that social science degrees, degrees in sociology, really existed much before the 1960s. I mean, I could be wrong. 1960s or 1970s even. But now we have an explosion of people with such degrees. Why? It's very clear why. Here in the protocols, this would be the way that they would enforce their order. So this is the education that they are most willing to dispense to the masses. Social science. Here we see first that the maintenance of economic classes here in this paragraph of the protocols we see first that the maintenance of economic classes is an objective of the authors of the protocols but these are not necessarily the traditional classes of western society rather these are new classes separated by appointment rather than by natural ability and service to the community this is also contrary to Marxism in theory where the existence of such classes is an anathema. But in assessing these statements, we must remember Protocol Number 1, where the authors had boasted that our motto is power and hypocrisy, and violence must be the principle. And that is exactly how Marxism was implemented in practice as the imposition of one class over another, and the superior class began as a cadre of Jews which chose its own members. Marxism in theory eschewed the concept of economic classes, but Marxism in practice created two classes, and the members of one of those classes remained above the law that they imposed on all the members of the other class, or the so-called proletariat. If there was a third class in Marxism, it is only by distinguishing those who executed the orders of the superior class from those who gave them, and thereby the executors were favored above the rest of the proletariat, but we do not recognize them as a separate class by themselves since they operated only at the disposal of their superiors. In our opinion, Marxism was never practiced and cannot be put into practice, and wherever it was attempted, it was only practiced in pretense. As Marxism in theory is different than Marxism in practice because Marxism is not natural. It is an artificial system imposed upon the proletariat by people who are not truly Marxist at all. They were capitalists only for themselves. That's what they really were. They were Jews, Talmudic Jews, ruling over the Goyim. That's what they really were. Marxism doesn't really exist. Even though we see Marxist 
principles implemented all around us, Marxism itself doesn't really exist. It can't. As we mentioned at the beginning of this presentation, we have already discussed earlier in the series the Jewish agents who were embedded into the Prost Protocol's American government. We have also already discussed the great number of influential Jews who ran the print and electronic media and intermarried with the nobility in Britain. These protocols were first published in Russia in 1905. Therefore, it is not a coincidence that as the plan of the protocols was being effected, the rise of science as the new priesthood and the rise of social engineering by technocrats had taken effect in America and Britain and throughout the West. Once these conditions arose and became accepted as a new creed by the entire political class, they have created a trap through which no political solution is possible. The profession of liberal social sciences as science allows the virtual demonization of every competing political paradigm. Liberalism and capitalism are scientifically good and all other systems of governance are thereby considered evil. Under this system, a gradual form of Marxism is imposed on all but the elite or ruling class. What follows is an article from a website called mutualist.org. Of course, we do not agree with all of the professions of the writers there, who seem to advance the economic anarchism of Prudhomme, which had some good features, some good features, and also seems to embrace libertarianism to some degree, which has some serious blind spots. But this article, titled Liberalism and Social Control, The New Class's Will to Power, written by Kevin A. Carson, is a good survey on the actual implementation of this aspect of the protocols, even if the author, Kevin Carson, was oblivious to the true source of this agenda of social control. However, sometimes the best witness is the ignorant witness who has no motive but to attest to that which he has seen. Not, note that the author's language is even similar to what we have presented here, even if he is not aware of the agenda as it existed before his assigned sources which are progressivism and Fabianism. In reality, these were also only goyim fronts for the promotion of the agenda of the protocols. From the climate change scientist to the common social worker, these are all programmed automatons carrying out the rituals and enforcing the sacraments of the appointed priesthood. And pop culture is the vehicle to which the religion of the global capitalists is transmitted. 
This is liberalism and social control. The new classes will to power. 20th century liberalism, and we'll let him define new class in the article. 20th century liberalism as an ideology of social control goes back to the progressive movement in this country and Fabianism in Britain. And that's his big blind spot because he doesn't understand that it goes back much further than that in the fabric of the protocols of the learned elders of Zeon. It's right there in black and white in protocol number three. But to continue with our author, its primary base of support was the new class of social engineers, planners, technocrats, and helping professionals who saw themselves as divinely appointed to manage the lower orders for their own good. Of course they were divinely appointed. They were the priests of the god of this world. (laughs) I can't help myself. I'm sorry. Although the term new class was coined by Milovin Dijilis. I'm probably butchering that name. I'm sorry. D-J-I-L-A-S. I'm glad it only appears here once to describe the bureaucratic collectivism of communist society, it is well suited for the ruling class under under welfare state liberalism. Orwell's description of this class is as good as any. And citing George Orwell, the new aristocracy was made up for the most part of bureaucrats, scientists, technicians, trade union organizers, publicity experts, sociologists, teachers, journalists, and professional politicians. These people, whose origins lay in the salaried middle class and the upper grades of the working class, had been shaped and brought together by the barren world of monopoly industry and centralized government. Monopoly industry and centralized government is creating its priesthood. Orwell recognized that. Walter Lippmann, and this is our author citing Walter Lippmann, who was a Jew, Walter Lippmann described the phenomenon from a much friendlier perspective in public opinion, and of course he would because he was a Jew and he was a tool of these same forces. The Lippmann quote states, The great society had grown furiously and to colossal dimensions by the application of technical knowledge. It was made by engineers who had learned to use exact measurements and quantitative analysis. It could not be governed, men began to discover, by men who deductively thought about rights and wrongs. In other words, moral men could not govern the great society. It could be brought under human control only by the technique which had created it. Gradually then, the more enlightened directing minds have called in experts who were trained or had trained themselves to make parts of this great society intelligible to those who manage it. 
These men are all known by all kinds of names, as statisticians, accountants, auditors, industrial counselors, engineers of many species, scientific managers, personnel administrators, research men, scientists, and sometimes just as plain private secretaries. And that's the end of our citation of Walter Lippmann. Kevin Carson goes on to say that the central theme of this new class ideology as Joel Spring, he quotes Joel Spring several times here, Joel Spring is a prairie nigger who was given a Ph.D. As Joel Spring put it in his book Education and the Rise of the Corporate State, was that the good society meant the efficiently organized society that was producing the maximum amount of goods. And, of course, that's the objective of state capitalism. And the most efficient social institutions for this purpose were large organizational units and centralized government. The ordinary person was viewed as a raw material whose worth was determined by his contribution to the system. Christopher Lash, a left-wing populist who sounded at times suspiciously like a social conservative, defined the new class ideology in terms of the ethos of professionalism, the Jeffersonian ideal of the independent yeoman farmer or tradesman, a well-rounded citizen capable of competently handling all issues that affected his daily life, was, in view of the progressives, obsolete. Instead, every aspect of life was to be professionalized, handed over to a class of experts, protected from interference by the lower orders. This was unabashedly argued in a book titled The Promise of American Life by Herbert Crowley, who sought to obtain Jeffersonian ends with Hamiltonian means. In this progressive manifesto, he praised experts and intellectuals in almost messianic terms. And let me interject that. Christopher Lash wrote a book titled The Revolt of the Elites and the Betrayal of Democracy, apparently not realizing that the so-called elites had created democracy in order to overthrow the European nobility and take control for themselves. As we have seen outlined in the protocols, so these men, while they are basically attesting for us the fulfillment, the precise fulfillment of the intentions outlined in the protocols decades before these fulfillments came to be, whereby we see a definite plan being executed. While these men can attest to the fulfillment, they haven't studied enough to be able to see the conspiracy behind the fulfillment. Carson goes on and he says, Barton Bledstein, who I suspect is a Jew, admirably described this fetish. The citizen became a client 
whose obligation was to trust the professional. Legitimate authority now resided in special places, like the courtroom, the classroom, and the hospital, and it resided in special words shared only by experts. John McKnight, in a speech to the 1976 retreat of the Brainerd, Minnesota Community Planning Organization, described the ways the helping professions infantilize ordinary citizens, meaning that these helping professions turn ordinary citizens into the status of infants. When the capacity, he says, this is John McKnight, when the capacity to define the problem becomes a professional prerogative, citizens no longer exist. The prerogative removes the citizen as problem definer, much less problem solver. It translates political functions into technical and technological problems. Now Carson got these quotes from Bledstein and from McKnight in a book written by Harry Boyta, or B-O-Y-T-E, titled The Backyard Revolution, Understanding the New Citizen Movement. And he goes on to say, Carson goes on to say, that it is important to remember that the new classes dream of professional control of the population did not arise in a vacuum. Liberal social engineering was not the only alternative to exploitation by robber barons. So he actual, actually manages to connect this liberal social engineering to the robber barons, which is a good first step. But he still misses the rest of the trail. The working class, he says, the working class in the 19th century had its own culture and institutions and was attempting to build a society in which workers themselves controlled all the things that affected their daily lives. Working class children in England sometimes attended penny-a-week schools taught by an aged or crippled worker. The artisan class contained a large proportion of self-educated people, some of them remarkably well-read in the political controversies of the time. Many radical leaders were master tradesmen who found the time to educate themselves during breaks in their work. Friendly societies often subscribed in common to the radical press and met to read and debate, citing E.P. Thompson in a book, The Making of the English Working Class. Genuine working-class unions, built from the bottom up and controlled by workers themselves, aimed at direct workers' control of the production process. Workers' organizations for self-help and mutual aid included collections for charity, and friendly societies organized on a subscription basis to ensure members against funerals and sickness so every function of the progressive welfare state, so beloved of author Schlesinger Jr., another Jew, was already being attempted by the workers themselves, but organized from the bottom up, instead of handed down from on high by paternalistic liberals. 
and we must interject that these things seem to represent grassroots resistance to the evils of global capitalism. Charity and the ownership of production should be local and community-based in a Christian society. Carson goes on, or continuing with Carson, the main shortcomings of working-class self-organization were those imposed from outside, lack of resources, and active suppression by the state. For example, had the working class been free to organize without interference by the state, and more importantly, had they had the full product of their labor to, labor to dispose of, their provisions for their own health, education, and welfare would have been far superior to anything doled out by the state. But Gugus, like Schlesinger, ignore the fact that the welfare state was created precisely in order to prevent the working class from organizing to keep the product of their own labor and control their work. The entire progressive agenda in the 20th century was oriented not toward ending the framework of state policy that supported corporate rule, but increasing state intervention to make corporate rule more bearable. The new class saw such self-organization as an atavism to be eliminated with all the other imperfections of the past when society was reorganized under the benevolent, benevolent rule of professionals, just as the protocols demand. Working class institutions were either supplanted or destroyed. Working class free schools were rendered obsolete by state schools, and in the process, the new class ideology achieved hegemony over the minds of children. Organs of self-help were encouraged to wither away by the helping professions. Syndicalist unions controlled by the rank and file and the vibrant labor press were liquidated by good liberals during Wilson's Red Scare. One of the best pictures of the ideal world envisioned by the new class was drawn by Hilaire Belloc in The Servile State. Belloc believed that Fabian collectivism, he believed it to be less dedicated to state or workers' ownership as such than to the idea of control by efficient centralized organizations. It would be politically impossible to carry out expropriation of the large capitalists. Therefore, attempts to regulate industry to make labor more bearable and to create a minimal welfare state would lead instead to a system in which employers would be compelled to provide a minimum level of comfort and economic security for their employees in return for guaranteed profits. The working class would be reduced to a state of near serfdom with legally defined status replacing the right of free contract and the state fitting the individual into a lifetime niche in the industrial machine. Such a society would appeal to the authoritarian kind of socialist whose chief values were efficiency 
and control. And of course the protocols also boasted that men became slaves many more times under capitalism than they were slaves under feudalism. And I believe that's probably back in protocol number two. Quoting Hilaire Belloc, Let laws exist which make the proper housing, feeding, clothing, and recreation of the proletarian mass be incumbent upon the possessing class, and the observance of such rules be imposed by inspection and punishment upon those whom he pretends to benefit, and all that he really cares for will be achieved. Belloc was horrified by bloodless Fabians like H.G. Wells and the Webbs, who dabbled in social engineering in addition to their many other hobbies. The Fabian movement preferred working within existing institutions to make capitalism more stable and humane, since it coincided with the rise of progressive industrialists who envisioned cooperation between business, government, and labor in the interest of efficiency. The two phenomena reinforced each other to promote class rule by men in suits who sat behind desks. In place of the classical socialist movement of the 19th century, aiming at workers' control of production and largely made up of real workers, the Fabians and progressives substituted management of workers by their betters. As Belloc pointed out, if only their lust to manage and regiment of the underclass were satisfied, the Fabians would be quite accommodating about capitalist ownership. Wells favored a minimum safety net of aid to the children of the destitute. In return for responsibility of parents to the state, on pain of rehabilitation in celibate labor establishments or prison work industries. <coughs> Minimum wages and housing standards would be designed not to guarantee subsistence to poor families, but to end the availability of cheap housing and low-paying jobs on which the destitute subsisted. The goal was to cease perpetuating the educationally and technically unadaptable elements in the population, and to breed a more efficient race by increased state supervision. In Wells's words, to convince these people that to bear children into such an unfavorable atmosphere is an extremely inconvenient and undesirable thing. The Webbs wanted relief conditioned on treatment and disciplinary supervision, with local government councils imposing compulsory vaccination and determining who was mentally defective or an excessive drinker. These things became a reality in the Swedish social democracy. Those too unemployable even for the compulsory labor exchanges would be required to attend training camps with their whole time mapped out into a continuous and properly varied program of physical and mental work, all of it being made of the utmost educational value.
In other words, if you don't cooperate, you will be reprogrammed to cooperate. Those refusing to cooperate would be sent to reformatory detention colonies. Citing books by H.G. Wells, Mankind in the Making, and The Prevention of Destitution by The Webbs, and John P. McCarthy's book on Hilaire Belloc, Edwardian Radical. Carson continues, This liberalism reached maturity during World War I, when a group of statist intellectuals grouped around the British War Office, the Wilson administration, and the New Republic invented the modern science of propaganda as a tool to engineer public support for the war. Some members of this circle, like Walter Lippmann and Harold Laswell, went on to develop theories of a spectator democracy in which the masses choose among elite candidates every four years and sit down and shut up the rest of the time. And that's exactly what's happened. As we have said, Walter Lippmann was a Jew. Harold Laswell was supposedly born to a Presbyterian family. He was a devotee of Sigmund Freud, who studied extensively with another such devotee, the Jew Theodore Reich. It is instructive, continuing with Carson, it is instructive to compare the composition of the socialist movement before and after Wilson. Before the Great War, socialist party congressmen, mayors, etc., were elected by Montana miners, Milwaukee brewers, and Oklahoma oil workers. After the Wilsonian terror, the rare socialist politician comes from a yuppie hog heaven like Burlington, Vermont, and the main demographic base for socialism is academia. And of course he's taking a swipe at Bernie, who was the mayor of Burlington, Vermont. Human services departments today are a favorite habitat of authoritarian statists. The welfare state, portrayed by conservatives as an instrument of class warfare, is really an instrument of class rule. (coughs) And this is an interesting perspective. It regulates the underclass so as to prevent class warfare from threatening the neat, comfortable, antiseptic world of the new class. The progressive Jacob Rees, in How the Other Half Lives, warned spellbound middle-class readers of The Man with the Knife, the anarchist raising the danger cry, the shout that should never have been raised on American soil, the solution of violence. Despite the illusions of aging New Deal Democrats, who live in an Arthur Schlesinger time warp. This is the real origin of the welfare state. Piven and Cloward argue that the two major expansions of the welfare state under Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Baines Johnson were both spurred by drastic increases in social disorder. With the unemployed and homeless participating in violent demonstrations and being drawn to radical movements, the welfare bureaucracy serves three functions. 
It takes the edge off of potential underclass radicalism by minimizing outright homelessness and starvation. It subjects its clients to so close supervision by a network of caseworkers who make sure they don't get up to any subversive mischief. And it enforces labor discipline by making the system as unpleasant as possible and scaring away all but the hardcore unemployable. The rest of them work for the post office. The most egregious example of the new class sense of divine right can be seen among the ideologues of the public education establishment. Joel Spring, the prairie nigger, draws a close parallel between early progressivism in society at large and public educationism as a microcosm of that ideology, with the schools being a center institution for the production of men and women who conform to the needs and expectations of a corporate and technocratic world. The purpose of the public schools, for the most part. The state school systems were organized about the time that large factories began to need a docile, obedient workforce that was trained to line up on command and eat and piss at the sound of a bell. In the words of Edgar Z. Friedenberg, Whatever the needs of the young people might have been, no public school system developed in response to them until an industrial society arose to demand the creation of holding pens from which a steady and carefully monitored supply of people trained to be punctual, literate, orderly, and compliant, and graded according to qualities determining employability from the employer's point of view, could be released into the economy as needed. Citing Friedenberg's book, The Disposal of Liberty and Other Industrial Wastes. Friedenberg was a 1960s anti-war activist and a supposed scholar of education and gender studies. It is not admitted by the media whether he was a Jew. With that background, we would not expect him to be anything else. Carson continues, and he says that public educationists, no matter his poor view of public schools, public educationists have never been bashful about their self-appointed mission to take pieces of human raw material from their families and transform them into useful servants of the state. James Mill, for example, saw the task of the schools as being to train the minds of the people to a virtuous attachment to their government. The writings of leading figures in departments of education, teachers' colleges, the NEA and the AFT, American Federation of Teachers, and the National Educational Educators Association, I believe, the NEA and AFT are teachers' unions were full to overflowing with statements to this effect. William Bagley's Classroom Management was the standard teacher's manual for two decades, reprinted 30 times between 1907 and 1927, 
It recommended machine-like organization as the educative force for slowly transforming the child from a little savage into a creature of law and order fit for the life of civilized society. A teacher's efficiency could be judged by the manner in which lines passed to and from the room. He recommended the establishment of regular habits with regard to the bodily functions and conditioning to assume a posture of head erect, eyes turned toward the teacher, and hands folded upon hearing the command of attention. The sociologist Edward Ross, in his 1890 Societal Control, treated school-sponsored extracurricular activity as an economical system of police. The educrat's mania for social engineering dovetails nicely with the corporate state's need for easily controlled drones. From the very beginning of the factory system, the more benevolent owners tried to exercise paternalistic control over the social lives and morals of their employees, with experiments in company plan self-improvement programs or moral and ethical instruction. To weed out those prone to immoral conduct, bad language, disrespect, or an improper attitude, the goal was to create healthy, well-adjusted workers, and to prevent the emergence of a depraved and shiftless proletariat on the European model. The combination of work, self-improvement through education, and moral scrutiny created a wedding between the church, the school, and the factory. This tendency was rapidly augmented by an arsenal of pseudoscience. Personality and aptitude testing evolved into a new industry under school guidance counselors and human resources departments. The most ominous development of human engineering is the school-to-work movement. Currently, all 50 states receive federal grants under the terms of the School-to-Work Opportunities Act of 1994. When fully implemented, the program calls for comprehensive career guidance for every student by 7th grade at the latest. He is to adopt a career major with an occupational area with available choices to be prescribed by a local planning board based on a projected need. Students at graduation receive certificates of mastery based on national standards being developed by the National Skills Standards Board. If the program develops as envisioned, it will evolve into a system of certification for all occupations with the federal government using tax and regulatory powers to encourage businesses to hire only those with certificates of mastery, citing Gary Wolfram and a book titled School to Work. Most of the progressive era good government reforms were aimed at professionalizing government and removing it from politics, that is, placing the rule of experts safely beyond any interference by the great unwashed,
meaning that they couldn't be voted out of office. In the words of FDR, the day of the politician is past, the day of the enlightened administrator has come. And of course, that was accomplished through the General Services Administration and the making of the bureaucracy in the fashion that it was as a bureaucracy of career bureaucrats who who are embedded into the government and are there pushing the same policies continuously regardless of who is in office. Carson continues and he says that the replacement of ward representation with at-large election in transformation of a council made up two-thirds of common workmen, tradesmen, clerks, and shopkeepers into one composed entirely of professionals and prominent businessmen in Pittsburgh's 1911 government reform. The replacement of neighborhood control with citywide school boards and superintendents was similarly designed to remove education from parental influence and give it over to the care of properly trained professionals. The intergovernmental authority pioneered in America by the New York Port Authority and Robert Moses Long Island Highway System, like many methods of authoritarian government, was resurrected from British law and adopted near universally as a form of professional government beyond the control of the electorate. And that's entirely true. That's the way the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey operates. And the entire 9-11 event of 2001 was made possible under the purview of that Port Authority, an agency which transcends local control of many roadways, buildings, bridges, and tunnels. Carson says that the new class ideology of progressivism appeared in a workplace in the form of scientific management. The goal of Taylorism was to take the management of work as much as possible away from master craftsmen on the shop floor and eliminate the initiative and independent judgment of the worker. The blue-collar worker was to be de-skilled and expertise shifted upward into the ranks of salaried white-collar engineers. Management would determine the most efficient way of organizing production, and tasks would be transformed into rote repetition, which engaged the mental faculties as little as possible. Workers were to be taught in no uncertain terms, that they were paid to do as they were told, not to think. The bosses feared that if workers controlled the production process, they might realize that the bosses were parasites, and in the words of the wobbly slogan, fired a boss. Taylorism was accepted by the labor establishment in the devil's bargain of the New Deal. The Wagner Act was supported by corporations engaged in high-tech, export-oriented production, because labor costs were a relatively insignificant part of their total costs, and they needed long-term stability and predictability in the workplace. The Wagner Act ended the genuine revolution that was taking place on the shop floors of Detroit and the docks of San Francisco.
co-opted the CIO leadership as part of the corporate establishment and turned unions into enforcers, enforcers of labor discipline. The position of the new labor bureaucrats was, let the bosses manage as long as they pay us good. The result was that a labor establishment dominated by mediocrities like George Meany was willing to purge itself during the Cold War of the same leftist radicals who had led workers to victory in the mid-1930s. William F. Buckley said somewhere that he'd rather be governed by people randomly chosen from the Cambridge, Massachusetts phone book than by 50 Harvard professors. True enough, but the same holds true in the workplace. I'll take a decision made by workers on the shop floor over one made by a boss any day, the words of Kevin Carson. Conservatives who complain of left liberals and otherwise treat liberalism or progressivism as synonymous with leftism are sadly mistaken. There is nothing left-wing about liberalism. As Chomsky wrote somewhere about the press, they may be liberal in the sense that they favor gun control and a woman's right to choose, and listen to NPR a lot, National Public Radio, which is very much liberal and progressive. But they are far from left-wing in the sense of a genuine criticism of the institutional power structure in this society. And in light of everything we have seen presenting these protocols of Satan, this is a summary which we can certainly agree with, even if our author is oblivious to the underlying causes. His assessments, however, fully prove everything which we have asserted and which we see attested in the protocols. He says, in fact, liberalism closely parallels Leninism as a pseudo-leftist ideology of social control by the new class. Leninism and liberalism between them wiped out the genuine libertarian or populist, left from a major part of the world. Woodrow Wilson, A. Mitchell Palmer, and their liberal stormtroopers tossed hundreds of wobblies, socialists, anarchists, nonpartisan leaguers, and other leftists into prison under the provisions of the Espionage Act and state criminal syndicalism laws. Many thousands of anarchists and libertarian socialists labeled saboteurs, and collaborators with white forces disappeared into Lenin's gulag. Ever since then, the conventional left has been a movement largely of academics and pseudo-intellectual peckerheads. In fact, I'm sorry, I'm repeating myself. These leftovers were all the best of the useful idiots for Satan, there's no doubt. Carson continues, Attempts at workers' control of production met similar resistance both in Lenin's Russia and in corporate America. Although management of factories by workers' committees compared favorably to pre-revolutionary managers, 
Lenin and Trotsky placed them under increasing restrictions by the People's Commissariats, finally replacing them with state-appointed managers. In an April 1918 Izvestia article, Lenin praised Taylor's scientific management methods and argued that, in the name of the proletarian revolution, workers should unquestioningly submit to one-man management of production. American corporate experiments with worker self-management were abandoned, even when they resulted in drastic productivity increases and reductions in absenteeism and injury. The reason in both countries was that social control was more important than productivity. If workers saw how much better they could organize production without the foreman, they might try to decide questions of what and why instead of just how, and fire the board of directors or the people's commissar. And the author does not seem to wonder why both countries were attempting to employ the same methods in spite of their supposedly contrary ideologies. Their supposedly contrary ideologies. He says, New class progressivism continued to flourish among welfare status after World War II. It heavily influenced both interest group pluralism and neoconservatism and the shadowy borderlands in between. Among others, this includes Daniel Bell, Samuel P. Huntington, Zbigniew Brzezinski, and Francis Fukuyama. And they were the forerunners of the neocons. Fukuyama is considered, I believe, the founder of the neocons, at least in some circles. The most notable modern descendant of the progressive social engineer, by the way, is Hillary Clinton. Her ideal government is a giant matriarch, like Godzilla in an apron, who constantly chants, Mama don't allow, Mama don't allow, all to protect us from ourselves, of course. Or as Joseph Stromberg wrote, the body of Leviathan and the head of a social worker. Those who view Hillary as a radical leftist are delusional. A woman who made a 10,000% profit in cattle futures and served as a director of Walmart is hardly a threat to the power of the ruling class. She and her ilk just want to protect upper-middle-class soccer moms with SUVs and cell phones from any underclass disruption of their white-bred suburban world. And this is also a false dichotomy, one which our author has unfortunately accepted. Hillary really wants to protect the Jewish world order. That's all she wants to protect. The new class's sense of privilege is evidenced by its zealous defense of the public school's monopoly status, while they send their own kids to Sidwell Friends, which is an exclusive, quote-unquote, Quaker school with campuses in Bethesda, Maryland, in Washington, D.C., and their relentless struggle against their serfs' right to bear arms, without touching their right to hire armed guards for themselves.
And then there's the national health official from Quebec who sneaked across the border under an assumed name to get decent medical care. There has been a whole host of commentators who have put the new class at the center of their analysis. Those who draw the most critical notice are those on the right like Peggy Noonan, who focus on what I call the soft new class. And Peggy Noonan is basically a fraud who worked for the Wall Street Journal and was the foremost promoter of George W. Bush for president back in the early 2000s. This category includes mainly academics, teachers, and helping professionals, but they tend to ignore the other side of the phenomenon in the private sector, the hard new class of managers and engineers, the paternalistic welfare state and arrogant public school establishment cannot be separated in their origins from the rise of scientific management and the cult of professionalism in the workplace. Both reflect an attempt to alienate the ordinary person from his own common sense and rob him of the ability to control the things that affect his daily life. The fulfillment of the protocols over and over. The solution to the new class rule is not the spurious populism of the neocons and the new right. The ditto heads appeal, meaning the Rush Limbaugh followers, I'm sure, the ditto heads appeal to the aw shucks sensibility of Norman Rockwell's America and play on the producing class's resentment of bureaucrats and welfare deadbeats. But their real interest is getting government off the backs of bankers, plutocrats, and CEOs. They carefully conceal the fact that the greatest criminals are in the corporate boardrooms and the national security state, and the biggest parasites and deadbeats are the heavily subsidized privileged corporations. Now, for the purposes of our podcast presentation, we are omitting the last paragraph of our author's article, because it presents his own solutions to this dilemma, which are not a care to us. We understand that there is no solution, and especially no political solution, until all of Mystery Babylon is left smoldering in the ashes. White men honest white men, and I believe they are both honest white men, such as a John Rappaport or a Kevin Carson, can see elements of our problems and sort out those elements very well, but without a knowledge of 2 C line Christian identity and the ability it affords to trace the movements of the enemies of our race right from the very start, they will never have the clarity of vision required to capture the entire picture, or to arrive at the only solution, which is the final solution. Note that in his penultimate paragraph of his article, after illustrating the hypocrisy of leftist new class progressivism, Kevin Carson stated in reference to the so-called new right that it was not the proper solution to the progressive left because it carefully conceals the fact that the greatest criminals 
are in the corporate boardrooms and the national security state. And the biggest parasites and deadbeats are the heavily subsidized privileged corporation. Corporations. This false dichotomy of left and right certainly does cover for the crimes of its masters. And that brings us immediately to the next part of protocol number three, which says, it is necessary that all should know that equality cannot exist, owing to the different nature of various kinds of work, that there cannot be the same responsibility before the law in the case of an individual who by his actions comprises an entire caste, and another who does not affect any anything but his own honor. In other words, the common man only affects his own honor, and he's responsible before the law. But the plutocrat, or the appointed priest of of the gods of this world, is not responsible before the law, and because he is, quote-unquote, affecting his actions compromise an entire caste or have an effect on an entire population he should be above the law that's what the protocols are telling us well that's also what our government tells us today and we'll get into this at a much deeper level next week the robber barons of the 19th century were never held I'm sorry, in the next in the next presentation of the protocols, which won't be next week. The robber barons of the nineteenth century were never held accountable for the innumerable crimes they committed, or that were committed by their agents on their behalf, and for the trail of misery they left behind while blazing their paths to the monopoly of industry under a handful of large banks and corporations. But while corporations have long been recognized by the courts as persons, meaning that they are granted all of the benefits and privileges granted by the law and the Constitution to flesh-and-blood citizens. They are not treated as persons when they commit crimes. So they have a tremendous advantage over real persons and are practically immune to seriously consequential punishment for crime. Ever since the development of the concept of modern corporations in the early 19th century, lawyers have been hired by the powers of finance to obfuscate legal principles by which corporations would be liable to criminal penalties for crime. When we return to these protocols of Satan, we will begin with this statement of the protocols and demonstrate this very fact. Even from recently published legal essays, these aspects of the protocols of Satan have been fulfilled in every way soon after the protocols themselves were published. And most of us are absolutely oblivious to our own oppression. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.